Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I earned my bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications in 2003 and later received my executive master's degree in public administration from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in 2020. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. I truly believe that I, that this journey is just beginning because I have, there's no ceiling, there's no limits, and we are going to do great things and change the justice system and the systems surrounding it that impact it to ensure that we create a better tomorrow for the youth and ultimately create a better tomorrow for the rest of our world as well. Well, folks, today on the podcast, we are pleased to bring the story of Tia Thevenin, a 2018 graduate of Syracuse University, who is a first-year law school candidate here at Syracuse University's College of Law. She has a great, diverse story to tell us of being an Olympic track hopeful and having to weigh the pros and cons of pursuing her athletics dreams. Uh, She's working to improve the legal system, trying to make it more accessible for disenfranchised citizens. She really has a a great balanced story to tell us, and she is our guest joining us right now on the podcast. Tia, thanks for making the time. Hopefully that introduction served justice towards, uh, you know, your career is so much more than that, but is that a pretty good synopsis? Yes, John, that was perfect. That was, I'm honored. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're, we're pleased to have you here. And Tia is coming to us from north of the border, uh, up outside of uh, Toronto. Uh, she is currently studying remotely and virtually uh, with the College of Law. I got to start with that, Tia. How are things going with your studies? Because law school is challenging enough to begin with, much less digitally learning. Yeah, I, I have to say that this is not the way I thought law school would be, would be going if, if you asked me a year ago. But I also do have to say... Um, I rest on on the fact that I made the best decision coming to Syracuse College of Law because our professors are incredible. They're so willing to to help in any way they can. And I truly think that they make remote learning fun and and a lot and and definitely provide us with the tools that we need to succeed. So I, I would definitely say it's not what I thought, but it's still going great. Well, hopefully you're able to uh, come to our beautiful campus and, you know, take classes in Deneen in person. It's a beautiful building. They've done such a great job in renovating and giving resources to our law school students. What was it, Tia, about the College of Law that really resonated with you and made you want to study here at Syracuse? I think coming back to Syracuse, um, it wasn't something that I had set out to do originally. Syracuse is just one of the top but it was competing with another law school that doesn't matter. <laughs> but <laughs> when it really got down to it, uh, I really wanted to leave the options open to doing a dual program and explore some more uh, classes, potentially a program in other schools at SU. And I thought that this would be the best place to start my legal journey. 
Um, Syracuse has incredible joint degree programs with your law degree. And I thought there's no better place to learn. And ultimately that was what made the decision a lot easier for me. Now, I know that being a first year uh, law student, your journey is, is just beginning when it comes to what impact you can have on the criminal justice system. Give our audience some insight into you and your goals and what difference you want to make when it comes to the criminal justice system. Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think I'm still trying to carve out the, the end goal, but I know what it wants to, what I want it to feel like during I originally thought I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. I thought that would be the best way um, to, to give the criminal justice system the respect and help that it deserves. However, I'm now starting to think I wanna be a little bit more preventative and I wanna use my law degree and potentially another degree that I explore a little bit of my background. Um, definitely interested in media, sports, entertainment, other ways to prevent children from being entangled in the system at all. But I'm still working on how exactly to create a more accessible um, legal field for children, juveniles who are already caught in the system. So that's, that's the journey I'm still working on. Obviously, we don't have time to delve into all of the, the issues and the wrongs that currently do plague our, our criminal justice system, but it really seems like there's such an issue with first-time offenders and your record staying with you forever. If you make a mistake, look, we've all made mistakes when we're kids. Sometimes, you know, the difference is whether you got caught or whether you had a system of privilege that could allow you to not face uh, the music, if you will, when it came to your decision-making, just how tough and just how lingering can something be where if you're a juvenile and you get caught with something, like how permanent can that be on your record? Ultimately, I believe that it's more deeper than the record because, you know, there are pardons and um, charges that if you face before you're considered an adult legally that can, you know, be expunged or concealed. But I believe the bigger impact is what it does on you mentally, being labeled a criminal, being labeled a felon, and how that follows people through their life. Um, I believe that the bigger impact is the, the inability to secure employment and to have to disclose that on a college application. And the labels that really follow the, the offenders when they, you know, maybe could have been rehabilitated or sent to a program where it wouldn't but that label wouldn't stay with them. I think that's where it, where it follows more beyond than just on their record. It's, it's more the mentality of um, people are looking at me and labeling me uh, a felon or a criminal. And that ultimately affects their life. And, and, and do you think that it's possible for strides to be made to remove that stigma? I mean, granted, it depends on the offense and, and you know, not all crimes are created equal, but what type of leniency can there be towards making it so it's not a harbinger of doom and gloom for somebody moving forward that they can overcome the stigma of having something, again, on their record and the mental impact that that has? I think that there are strives to be made. I think that there are programs that need to be put in place, A, preventative measures, but B, as, as you said so eloquently, like not all crimes are, are weighted equal. Not all crimes are, are as, as stigmatized and as viewed just as bad as another one. But I do believe that 
if we create maybe programs for reintegration and we look at it more from a utility perspective and a reintegration as opposed to um, retribution and giving these children back the punishment that they deserve for the wrong, we can see a change. Now, I know that um, it's reflective, I would imagine, of the whole criminal justice system, but these problems seem to be even more persistent in communities of color uh, than they are in, in your, your Caucasian communities. Just how emblematic of a problem and symbolic of a problem is it for, especially the youths of these cultures and these communities who you know, make a mistake when they're hanging out with people they shouldn't be hanging out with, maybe peer pressure kind of plays in, and they make a mistake that could possibly sway the rest of their life. Just how much of a persuasive impact and influence does that have in p- communities of color compared to your Caucasian communities? I think that definitely disenfranchised uh, color communities because there's a lot of stigma around it um, growing up. Just, you know, you learn from a young age how to approach police officers as a young black boy or as a young black girl, how to change your demeanor so you don't come off as aggressive, how to speak, how to stand. Um, So you already go into situations knowing that you're at a disadvantage. And I also believe that in you know, speaking from my experience as a young black girl, there were some ways that I, that I wasn't allowed to express myself because it did come off as rude. And, and I had situations where I would shrink myself when, when confronted with something as, as small as like a, a conflict with a, with a teacher at a young age. And I think that it, it showed up in the young, the young boys of color when they're being sent in the hallway or, or labeled a troublemaker when there are issue, other issues at home and other issues of, you know, the stigmas of how, how do I speak to a, a teacher? How do I come off as not being aggressive and for them not to fear me? Or um, how do I change my tone? So I, I think that there's a lot of internal dialogue that is different um, for children of color. And they approach situations uh, speaking to themselves with, with, yeah, a different internal dialogue than maybe a Caucasian child would. And it manifests in different ways that ultimately has them perceived in different ways, which <laughs> goes down into, um, into how they're treated and then how their life kind of unravels and how that, it's, it's definitely like a domino effect. <laughs> Do you think that domino effect carries over to sentencing and that aspect of it where um, there's, again, more leniency might be showed to one group versus another based on, like you said, those previous factors and, you know, the communities where they're coming from? I would definitely say yes. Um, I, I read an article once and it, and it alluded to, you could live in two different zip codes and be treated completely different. And I thought, wow, what a, you know, what a, what a thought that is because, you know, one, one zip code might be a little bit more over-policed than another zip code. And so you're getting, you know, maybe charged for an offense that was, you know, that, that got caught <laughs> versus someone else in another zip code that's not as over-policed, not getting caught. And essentially how that goes into, you know, you're, you're in front of a judge and, and you're young and uneducated about the law and, how that can really affect you. Um, so yes, I do believe that that there are discrepancies and the whole goal is to try to level level that out. And of course, prevent those instances anyways <laughs> from happening at all. 
and I'm not trying to put you on the spot as a spokesperson okay. for this topic, but I think it's a really eye-opening subject material that our alumni, you know, deserve to hear about because you seem very mm-hmm. passionate about, again, making the law accessible and making it accessible for those disenfranchised citizens. Just how much can the law prove to be a burden when it comes to having access to the same opportunities, the same uh, legal rights? Because we all, I mean, the Constitution clearly states it. We're all entitled to these unalienable rights, but it seems like it doesn't always ring true for certain segments of those disenfranchised citizens. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, the way the world is going right now, um, we are starting to become more open to hearing different perspectives. And it's been so beautiful in some of the movements. I know we see a lot of the bad sides to it, but even in, um, in my applications to go to law school, I realized that there are opportunities for marginalized groups and opportunities for underrepresented groups. And that gives me hope. I know on the, on one side, uh, it might feel as though some opportunities are being robbed um, from equally, you know, as well-qualified candidates that might not be underrepresented or might not be minorities. But I truly believe that the way in which our world is going right now, we're all going to have such a beautiful, diverse voice um, at, at the table, figuratively, you know, at the table for people of backgrounds to be represented. So I, I have faith that the legal system, you know, we could have this conversation in five, 10 years and things are gonna look much different. And I think uh, when faced with so much, so much darkness, I think in the world and having to see such a skewed view of, you know, what we need in terms of police justice reform, et cetera, um, holding on to that hope is really what, change, what will allow you to even believe that change is possible. And it's going to take more emerging lawyers like yourself, uh, people who really do want to make a difference and give back to that segment of the population that, again, is not having access to the same legal rights that everybody else seems to enjoy in this country. It's, it's great to hear your passion. It's great to hear just how driven you are to accomplish this change. Where did your interest in the law first come from? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, it, it might not have manifested itself as interest in the law, but it was, it started off as interest in fairness. Uh, I, I, I do remember instances growing up in elementary school and in high school when I felt a gross separation in between who was labeled as good, who was labeled as bad, who was given opportunities, who wasn't given opportunities. I, I joke sometimes that uh, I, I was a, a black athlete who was um, represented as like the golden child, the, the one black girl who could speak. <laughs> and, and that's absolutely not true. But I, I, that was how I felt, like the best of the worst. Because, um, you know, the, in our education system, a lot of people aren't always exposed to different perspectives. And we want to assimilate at an it depends on, you know, schools or where people live or what they experience, but they assimilate to a culture that thinks that it's just one standard, but kids are faced with many different challenges. And then I grew up with um, people who were faced with many challenges. And I think that's where, where I started to realize that there was a little bit of unfairness in how some of my friends were treated. And I knew that they were just misunderstood and they didn't want to be 
sent out in the hall for being disruptive. They were just tired or hungry or didn't understand. And maybe they were, you know, more hands-on learners as opposed to just sit down and read a book. And um, that manifested into being in college. And I lost two childhood friends that had gotten caught in the criminal justice system. And I realized I wanted to use my education to get a psychology degree. And I thought it was going to be with being some type of psychologist for juveniles who were caught in the system. That was my um, College of Arts and Sciences degree and my Whitman degree put together. I was gonna create something that I had never seen done before. And I was really excited about that. Um, and coming home back to Toronto, I was working a couple odd jobs and I actually started babysitting for a judge. And after many conversations between him and I, we, you know, he planted in me the idea that I could become a wonderful lawyer and affect change that is, you know, that I, that I didn't even believe possible because the type of children that I might want to impact won't have access to a psychologist. Those aren't the ones that you're going to see coming into your office. And I thought that makes perfect sense. And so that's kind of where it was birthed from, but I don't think that it stops there because I'm learning every day and, um, and I'm excited to see where this journey is going to go. You, know, you talk about this sparked from an interest in, in fairness and also recognizing the privilege that you either had or saw friends that did not have access to. That can be kind of a, it can be a very shattering moment when you realize that there's privilege out there that affects you differently than, than your peers. How did you come to terms with that, with that sense of, okay, there's privilege out there and certain people have access to it and other people don't? Yes. Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I think in, in terms of fairness and privilege, they go hand in hand because I would see, if I could bring it back to the education system, I could see some of my peers being sent out in the hallway but other peers being spoken to and reasoned with to try to understand um, why they were expressing themselves in certain ways. And I believe that I looked at my own life and I thought, well, you know, uh, I do have some privileges that my peers don't. I have two parents that love me, who, are, who raise me under one household. I live in a wonderful community. I'm, I'm not hungry ever. Um, I, I have resources and I have good choices made for me already. I have parents that, that have raised me and instilled in me and, and reasoned with me day on a daily good choices. And that was a privilege. It, it doesn't sound like having horses and driving a Lamborghini to school, but it is, they are basic privileges because some kids don't have good choices. They don't have good role models. They don't have opportunity to play a sport and earn a D1 scholarship. They don't have an opportunity to even get the shoes to play the sport to get the D1 scholarship. And privilege, to me, I had to break it down and realize that it was me having necessities, just the basics, but some kids didn't have that. And then that, unfortunately, got them in situations that developed into bad life choices and bad life situations. It's refreshing, Tia, to know that at the law school level, especially where there's such a major role that you aspiring lawyers play in the justice system, 
um, that conversations are being had like this to really talk about the roles, you know, that, that you guys play because it's, it's change is only going to come from those moving forward. The ones who are going to enter the ones who are already in the system, it's harder. They're more entrenched in their roles, I would think, but those who are aspiring to be in the legal field, you guys are going to be the ones that are going to carry forth that change. And I can tell that you really welcome that responsibility. It, it's a big one, but I think you've, you've got a broad shoulders to handle that. I think so as well. And I thank you. That is, that is a great compliment. I would definitely say that, um, you know, my, my short time in Deneen, I did get to spend about a month in Deneen and I got to learn from the, the second year and third year law students and they are pioneers of change. Um, you know, they welcome diversity of thought and there's immersive conversations inside and outside of the classroom. And I truly believe that I, that this journey is just beginning because I have, there's no ceiling, there's no limits, and we are going to do great things and change the justice system and the systems surrounding it that impact it to ensure that we create a better tomorrow for the youth and ultimately create a better tomorrow for the rest of our world as well. To make the segue from law to athletics, you know, you also uh, were a standout in the indoor and outdoor track and field teams here at Syracuse. Uh, You were a four-year member of the Orange. You were an Olympic hopeful in the 100 meter hurdles, which is impressive given your five foot three stature out there to uh, really display your prominence and prowess on the track and field. What role did the track, I know that, you know, um, Olympics have been paused. We're hoping that they're going to kick up in, in 2021 in Tokyo, but there's so much uncertainty. Take us through the role that sports and, and being in a, a track and field uh, athlete, what role has that played in your development? Wow. Um, track and field was everything. I, I say that track gave me access to the best of the best, the best coaches, (laughs) the best athletes to work with, the best teams, opportunities. Uh, I went to the best school. (laughs) I'm still there. Uh, It gave me the best experiences. Track allowed me to have an education that would allow me to think for myself and for others that It allowed me to have experiences to volunteer and to help people who are less privileged. Track allowed me to be competitive and that served me well in law school now as well. But it allowed me to really explore different areas of myself and to continuously grow. It set a standard of excellence in no matter matter what you do. And it really allows me to show up every day and to stick to the goal and to know that things will change, you know, in sport, you can get injured, uh, you can be off one day, um, but you just keep pressing forward. So track made me strong and it made me hopeful. I have faith. Uh, Syracuse track and field was the best team. I'm still a record holder indoor and outdoor. (laughs) And I'm waiting for someone in the next generation to break it. It will be incredible. Um, Orange for life and, and Syracuse track and field was the best. It's remarkable to hear you talk about being a a record holder for our esteemed track and field teams. And of course, you know, we all know on the male side, Justin Knight continues to light the world on fire. It's great to see what he's been able to do. And, but he, he seems to have more of a traditional track and field background. You got into the sport much later than the average track and field athlete uh, starting in high school. How did, uh, how'd you have to overcome uh, the adversity of being a late bloomer to the sport? Um, you know, 
being a late bloomer to the sport had pros and cons. Uh, the pros was that there was a lot of things that I never knew. And sometimes ignorance is bliss <laughs> in terms of not having such high pressures. Uh, it was really fun. It started off uh, as, as just for fun. I was traveling the world, uh, running fast and getting to run in stadiums that didn't even make me feel nervous. Uh, running in, in front of 50,000 people because it was just fun. Um, it definitely, I was blessed to have acquired success pretty fast in my track and field career. And of course, landed myself the division one scholarship on a great team. Um, but I would say that there were things about competing at the, D, the division one level that I wish I had known. So I guess those were the, those were the cons. I wish I was, I was, maybe a little bit more adaptable. I wish I did more things for the Orange. I'm really glad that we brought up Justin Knight. He's one of my best friends and I am always inspired with how, um, how much he's done for the Orange and how well recognized we are and respected because of what he's done. When, when, you, when you look back uh, at the track and field career for Syracuse, what really stands out to you as like your, your favorite moments, your favorite memories from competing for Syracuse? Oh, easily. 2017, we're in Kentucky at the University of Kentucky. It is NCAA, uh, the first round. We're at regionals. It's pouring rain. I had never been to NCAA nationals before. Uh, my team, we had faced a lot of injuries that year, so none of the sprinters had qualified for NCAAs as yet. And it was one of those moments where everything was just slow. I wasn't concerned with the results. I wasn't concerned if I had made it to nationals, but I knew that uh, my coaches and I and my team, we had put in so much work and the gun went off and I don't remember anything. I just remember crossing the line and being in a pile of my teammates as everyone celebrating because I secured the last spot to NCAA nationals. And I will, it's a moment I will never forget because I feel like everything just came together in the in the 13 seconds that I ran and I wish I could give you more but I don't remember (laughs) and that was by far my favorite moment ever with an s on my chest what was it about the hurdles I mean it's you talk about running fast and then you add in the athleticism and the agility that it takes to scale these physical hurdles that are in front of you what was it about this sport that really called out your name Oh my goodness. I think when I stepped on the track, I just didn't think about anything. Um, There were no worries, no fears. It was just fun. I got to, it's such an expression. I think hurdles, especially because I'm naturally competitive. The middle child of five always had to, you know, assert my dominance. (laughs) And I think that the hurdles allowed me to do that. It's a testament to life barriers, hurdles, achievements over tumultuous things that life might throw you. And I think the hurdles was a perfect expression of how I go through life and um, the best event. (laughs) Yeah. The best (laughs) event. I do want to get an update from you, Tia, because we had mentioned earlier about, you know, the Tokyo Olympics. And I know I had mentioned, use the phrase an Olympic hopeful for you. I know that how much had that been um, a dream of yours to race and compete in the Olympics? And where do you stand with that Olympics process? So I think that the Olympic dream was really birthed when I was at Syracuse. Uh, I knew that I could 
make a Canadian national team. I'd done that a couple of times before coming to Syracuse, but the work that I, that I had put in with my two coaches, they really made me feel competent, like it was a possibility. And I had my eyes set on 2016, two years after being um, in Syracuse, didn't do too well at those trials. I think I came 11th, 12th. And I just knew that, all right, next time we, next time we go back and we, we race with those ladies, we want to be better. And then um, in 2017, 2017 world, we went back to race with those girls. And this time I came fourth and I'm like, yes, what we're doing is great. And I thought by the time we get to 2020, we'll be in the top three and we'll be on the plane to Tokyo. So unfortunately, of course, I am not um, going to be an Olympic athlete because by the time the Olympics come around, I will be a second year law student. Um, and I donated all of my, um, my spikes and gear other than my Syracuse gear and my Team Canada gear. Those are untouchable because I will have future track kids. <laughs> but um, everything else was part of the healing process to get rid of it. And um, to really inspire the next generation, I'm lucky in that uh, my mom has a lot of ties with her native country, Jamaica. So we got to give all of my old track gear, a lot of it, um, to children who have much of nothing and as they go on to be great and hopefully, um, you know, become division one runners themselves and Olympic hopefuls themselves. How tough was it for you to have to say, to an Olympic dream, you had this dream since you started with the sport, but that it just wasn't in your future. How hard of a decision was that for you? I think I haven't faced anything harder in my life than that. Um, it was, you know, if I could just be completely honest, um, I was in quarantine <laughs> crying for, you know, for weeks. And I just really wanted to make sense of the thought that I couldn't even try. And in track, you know, being a track and field athlete, that doesn't make any sense. You try every single day and you give it a hundred percent. And I had to wrestle with the thought that I wasn't going to be able to try to become an Olympian because I couldn't go to those trials. And, and for a second, I thought about deferring my acceptances and going to law school a year later and really giving it all to the dream again but I had already planted a seed for the next step and something about it uh the feeling that I had about the law the legal system and law school was the feeling that I had when I first started track and I knew that that was the feeling that I had to follow and looking back I am beyond ecstatic that that's the choice that I made um, yes, it's, it's hard not, not having the OLY, uh, behind your name and not knowing that you gave your all representing your country, but I'm going to take everything that I learned from Syracuse athletics and Canadian athletics, and I'll be able to represent that in the world. And that is just as exciting for me. When you look back on uh, the non-athletics moments from being with track and field or being at Syracuse, you know, what really stands out to you is some of the, the ways that Syracuse has impacted and defined your life and your career. I think that at Syracuse, I faced a lot of challenges. I got hurt. Um, one of my proudest moments is, you know, struggling with depression and beating it. <laughs> Like, I feel like it should be on a resume. It's, it's the greatest accomplishment. And Syracuse made me strong. 
Syracuse made me, uh, it gave me the ability and the people in my life that I needed to really understand what it felt like to have challenges and to face them, attack them, demolish them, and then help the next generation to do the same. I was lucky to be in a position of leadership on the track team in my last two years and really help build up the younger girls. And I know that they are carrying that legacy forward. So some of, I think, the best moments at Syracuse were the weak moments because I really got to learn how to be strong. And that plays out in my life everywhere from now on. So, yeah, I would definitely have to say that's the best moment. When it comes to uh, being an alum of Syracuse University, just what does it mean to you to have that title, to know that you're one of 260,000 proud alums across the world? I think it means a lot, which is why you can't get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) But I love Syracuse. It feels, I feel honored. Like I'm a part of something way bigger than myself. The alumni network is incredible. I see Syracuse hats and shirts in Toronto, in the airport, in LA, like anywhere, in Cali, in New York, anywhere. Um, Syracuse is widespread and it feels like family. Like you have family members everywhere. Like you always have someone supporting you and who has your back. And I'm always willing to answer questions about people who want to go to Syracuse because I'm like, yes, come, there's nowhere better. (laughs) Um, So I feel proud. That is the word that I would use to describe how I feel to be a Syracuse alum. I know that you're goal oriented and you're always trying to think of what's, you know, what the future holds for yourself. If we were to spin ahead, you've earned your law degree from Syracuse's College of Law. What does the future hold for you when it comes to your legal career? Where do you see yourself in five, 10 years? Rubbing my crystal ball. I have no clue. But if we're talking dream career, I would love to be somewhere in entertainment and sports, helping companies and um, different athletes, different teams to help the justice system. I know that sounds absolutely insane. It doesn't make sense right now, but it's going to. Um, If you look at some of the movements, uh, Colin Kaepernick, LeBron James, some of the athlete advocates that can grasp the the media's attention and the world and really make a difference. I truly believe that uh, media grabs the attention of the youth. And if you can't see yourself in your community, you can see yourself in these athletic figures or, you know, in the entertainment realm and some of these people's stories and the ability to build up the community based off of your life, I think is something that I'm really excited to to dabble with. Um, Beyond that, I have a little bit of interest in fair housing and finding, you know, affordable living situations. And I really just want to tackle, you know, preventative mechanisms that um, end up having an impact on the youth life. I know it's refreshing that the stick to sports days are so far behind us. You look at the great work that LeBron James is doing out there with his academy. You look at the fact that during uh, the 2020 elections, major sports facilities were turned into voter mobilization centers to get people out to vote. I think it's a perfect merging. And if you want a precedent, Syracuse with the Syracuse eight from back in the seventies, Greg Allen and his peers enacted so much change through taking a stand through athletics. I'm not surprised at all to hear you take those interests Tia. And I know one thing is for certain, 
whatever you set your mind to, you'll be successful with it. Gotta do it. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> exactly. Syracuse 8, that legacy lives on forever. And I will always be a proud orange. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Forever orange. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. Yeah.